welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Pragmatic Marketing, and your host for this episode. Today, we are joined by Art Petty, world-renowned thought leader, speaker, and author on leadership. Welcome, Art. Well, hi, Rebecca. Great to be here. And it's not often I get that world-renowned in front of the title. So thank you. That made my morning. We went very fancy today, but it is true. And and I have to come clean, Art. I am a big fan and a longtime reader of your leadership blog, artpetty.com. Uh, it's one of the reasons I was so excited for you to write the feature for us and the, the latest issue of the magazine that comes out soon. And so excited to talk to you today. Well, it, I'll uh, thank you, and I'll share back that I'm a big fan of uh, pragmatics, and I believe I was one of the earliest customers way back a long time ago in my earlier life when I was actually active as a product manager and leading a product management team and had a great experience uh, carrying the product uh, pragmatic marketing training through several companies, in fact, several companies and industries. So uh, it's uh, it's exciting to be here. It feels right. Good. Excellent. All right. So before we get started, why don't we give listeners a little bit more about you and why you're so passionate about leadership as a topic? It's funny in my, um, you know, latter stages of my careers, I began to develop a focus on what it was that created incredible value in uh, all of our businesses. And I had wonderful experiences inside, uh, you know, some of the world's largest companies, uh, intrapreneuring in building businesses, and also in a smaller software and mid-sized software business. And at the end of the day, uh, after a couple of decades of doing this, I figured out that it was all about the people and the work environment and, uh, uh, and so many of those critical leadership attributes um, I kind of reflected back on a, a long career and sadly couldn't look to a lot of inspirational role models, but I had a big memory bank of all of those things that I would never do when it was my turn. <laughs> and thankfully, I had some great teams that let me learn on the job and taught me what it meant to lead, and they created uh, tremendous value along the way. And the world of uh, of prod- product management is, and by the way, I'll often confuse project and product management, and I apologize to everybody. I work in both of those worlds, <laughs> and I, lo- I love everyone. I love you all. Um, <clears throat> the, the, when I went to set up my blog about nine years ago, the first post I wrote was the product manager as MVP, most valuable player, and that really cements my perspective on what I think of this, uh, this role's ability to create incredible value in organizations. So um, in kind of an evolutionary process, that's the, the short answer uh, uh, to your great question. But I think leadership is so important in product management because it's so key to a successful product manager. And it, and it often doesn't come with the authority built in in the title, right? You don't get to be a leader because my title is an executive and I'm fancy. It's because it, you have to do that. You have to lead the teams. And sometimes without that sort of built-in uh, leadership piece, without the title, without the you know, automatic, but you need to do it if you're going to be successful. So it's such an important topic for our audience. Product managers are the consummate integrator leaders. They have all of the responsibility and accountability and not a lot of the authority, and they have to earn that authority and earn that credibility and trust of team members to execute on their jobs. So, yeah, I mean, hats off. They're they're actually working uh, often at a disadvantage to uh, some of those uh, individuals running around with titles. And, um, you know, the product managers that I've worked with have done a remarkable job at that. 
Which brings me to our topic for today. So in the article that you wrote for us, you talked about just such a product manager that you named Amy uh, and a journey that she went through at her company in terms of leadership. So why don't you give us a, a little bit of background? Why don't you set the stage for us about Amy? Sure. And if I might just, uh, I'm a big fan of context. So a little bit of context in the work that I'm doing today, my workshops and speaking activities and those topics, everything focuses on, look, we're at a different point in time. And I know this issue of change almost sounds cliche, but frankly, change is changing. And I love that saying from Gary Hamill, uh, management innovator. Um, and I've been on the lookout for individuals who are doing a remarkable job navigating change, either seizing opportunity um, out of the, uh, you know, what they term the VUCA, the volatility, uncertainty, uh, uh, ambiguity uh, in those areas, or, or doing an incredible job uh, mitigating the risks in that environment. By the way, the C was complexity, almost left that one out. <laughs> so I, I've, I've been looking for those uh, those individuals. And it's my perspective that uh, in addition to all of the fundamental leadership skills that your audience could cite verbatim in terms of what we need to do in order to succeed as leaders, I view that as table stakes. It's this ability to help guide teams and navigate this uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity in this world today. That's the difference maker. And I'm looking for leaders who display what's termed Miyoshu, which is the brilliant and unexpected approaches to succeeding in this environment. And that's where Amy comes in. So a little bit of background on Amy now. Amy was a uh, senior product manager inside of a uh, large Fortune 500, uh, you know, industrial systems, which means hardware and software type firm. And to her credit, she uh, had recognized that there was something not quite right with the investments that her company was making. The company was doing very well. They had a, a full roadmap of, uh, of product activities, just like every other company you'll ever come across. They had too many uh, projects chasing too few uh, resources and dollars, and they had made some critical priorities. And when she stepped back and looked at it, it was her perspective that everything was incremental in nature. It was a, a lot of me too, um, and the world was changing around their industry, and she just was uncomfortable with this sort of tunnel vision plus myopic viewpoint. And even though executives were happy with the roadmap, um, customer counsel was happy with the roadmap, Amy wasn't happy, and she knew that she needed to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a tell you, she's in a tough spot, right? When she can see something, but no one else sees the problem. And, and I imagine she had to do that carefully, right? You don't want to go in and say, you're all wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, I mean, imagine the just the political headache there of looking at something that everybody's fundamentally happy with. And again, all the metrics of the business were good. The scorecards were good. The numbers were good. People were pretty excited about the work that was going on in the business. And and so was Amy. I mean, you know, she wasn't, you know, dissatisfied with it. She just felt that there was something missing there. So she took a step back and decided, to, you know, you had a couple of attacks at that point. You could begin to raise the case with uh, those that hold the power in the organization. In this case, she's kind of one rung below the executive level and, uh, of course, looking to get to that level. Um, and, and or she could manage her controllables. And she decided that uh, instead of crying wolf or fire or whatever the term might be, she would actually go about it in a different way. And all the, although the approach that I described sounds like she had it figured out from the beginning, she would be the first one to admit that she had to experiment and, uh, and flail a little bit with it. But 
So she, she took the controllable. She pulled her team together and said, hey, guess what? You know what? All of that money that we invest on sending our team members out to industry events next year, I am slicing that budget in half. Mm. You might imagine the look on their faces. It's like, you know, I mean, what are we under cost cutting and cost controls here? And she said, and I'm going to take that same amount of money and we're going to allocate that towards a new project. We're going to go out and become, and I think she threw out the term, uh, you know, anthropologist. We're just going to go out and study and observe and listen. We're going to get out of the confines of our industry and our customers. We do that very well. We listen. We know. We understand. We understand our competitors. What we don't know where are the trigger events coming from in different areas, different markets, and different technologies that could either change the game completely for us, positively or negatively, you know, something that we could seize as, uh, uh, as an opportunity or something we have to mitigate as a risk. And the team was still confused. So she had done a little bit of background work and identified a number of events that were so disconnected from their core business as to, again, raise eyebrows and you know, they set up uh, groups and they went out and uh, and visited those events. And her instructions to them were to do nothing more than to listen, you know, ask questions, learn, observe, come back with what you're hearing and seeing about changes, trends, you know, the, the things that are exciting people in that particular industry. And then we'll debrief on it. Now, while the teams were out kind of running through this first wave of uh, anthropological visits to uh, places they never expected they'd end up uh, going and industry events and seminars and programs, she also did something uh, that was pretty pretty brilliant. It turned out to be brilliant. She didn't know it at the time. She commandeered a uh, an office on the floor that wasn't being used and you know, kind of created that is the uh, the room where they would uh, capture and curate all of the the content. Uh, I'm always tempted to use the phrase war room, but that sounds so negative. So I'm going to try not to call it that, Rebecca. Um, so she went, uh, she, she did that and they came back and they literally just began to have discussions on what did you see? What did you observe? And um, they curated, they captured this content and the room began to fill up with flip charts and it was, you know, wall to wall whiteboards and those types of things. And they left the content there. So they sent out and they went out uh, to wave number two. The team was kind of getting into this. Um, she challenged them this time to say, go out, do the same observing. But when you come back, we're going to look at everything we've captured and begin to talk about what this means for us and our business, what this might mean for our industry, what this might mean for our customers. And so they began to have those discussions and the content uh, began to build and the ideas. Again, a really good job curating it. They did happen to all be housed uh, locally, so this uh, this didn't have the complexity of a, of a virtual team. And Amy did the next brilliant thing. And again, she didn't know it at the time, but uh, it worked out that way. She began to kind of pull different executives into this, you know, this room where they were curating the content. And suddenly it became a really interesting place to look at what was happening and some of the hypotheses that the team was making about uh, the business and uh, these other types of events and, and scenarios out there. And as we fast forwarded through time, eventually they worked to winnow down all of these observations into a couple of core hypotheses that they believed were the most likely to affect their business or to create opportunity in their marketplace. And again, there wasn't there's a scientific method in use here, but I'm not sure that Amy would claim that she used a lot of science in how they winnowed it down. Eventually, they used some some common sense, some judgment component in there. Um, by that time, uh, they had identified a couple of areas that uh, could go deeper in exploration, 
Amy had already lined up the political support by the work she was doing with the executives, and they began to to run what I term some intelligent experiments. And uh, you know, I can fast forward to the end there that after going at this for you know a bit over a year or so, they identified a number of uh, you know important or they created a number of important outcomes. I think it was about ten months that. Uh, uh, they had one new product idea that ultimately received funding for a brand new market for the business to go to move into. So that supported Amy's objective of trying to diversify the risk off of their core industry. They had uh, two new strategic partnerships that they never would have found without this that were going to help open up new markets for new customers. Um, and they uh, you know, uncovered a host of different ideas and approaches to strengthen some of their own uh, internal activities. So. You know, in less than a year's time frame, Amy actually put her imprint on uh, helping change the nature of the business, diversify against the risk. And in my terms, she demonstrated that Miyoshu, it was brilliant and an unexpected, you know, unthought of type of an approach. And I just love the model. And uh, to her credit, Amy has gone on to become an executive in that company now and is doing quite well. And I think this helped her. And of course, she comes from a product background. And I'm sure your audience will appreciate that uh, the creativity and the approach that she took there. There's so many great things about the model that you talked about there, Art. Um, just the idea, the sort of anthropological uh, approach to it, the idea of leveraging learnings in other industries, right? So it's not necessarily recreating the wheel, but it's going out to other industries, maybe even outside of the tech space. I think a lot of us in tech think, well, you know, we do it better, faster, smarter already. But I, I think there's a ton we can learn from some very different spots. So I, I think that's a really interesting approach. I agree. I think that, um, and again, she, as I said earlier, she wouldn't necessarily have predicted the outcome or didn't necessarily know the right way forward. There was a bit of flailing and experimenting, but that's what leaders have to do um, in this environment. Uh, I, I way overuse a metaphor of, uh, you know, sometimes you have to steer into the steer your ship into the fog a little bit and navigate your way through it. And, you know, that's absolutely what she pursued in that case. The, the really cool thing, too, about it, Rebecca, is that it's not it wasn't um, incredibly complex. Mm, mm -mm. I think that just about anybody can develop their own version of that type of an approach. You know, don't necessarily guarantee they'll have the same outcomes, but the biggest failing in this world of change is to not to try techniques like this to get a different view. And, you know, in support of that, I can tell you that the, the people that tend to reach out to me are the businesses, often they're tech businesses that have been around for a few, a few decades, that are beginning to discover that what used to work so brilliantly no longer hunts in this world. And they failed to take the steps that Amy instituted there. They failed to look around for those other trigger events. And it's, you know, it's difficult to navigate uh, your way back in a world where you, your business model or your offerings have suddenly become fundamentally obsolete. They've been disrupted or whatever term you want to throw at it. And this is one of those approaches. And there are many other techniques, but this is one of those approaches that can help mitigate that risk. Well, and the big thing is that she did it before she had to, right? She saw yes. the problem before it was the problem. If she waits until they've become obsolete in their core products, when they're having problems, they're not going to have the freedom for this. And they're going to look at the opportunities entirely different, right? They're going to be like, does this make me money right now <laughs> versus is this the right decision? Yeah, and again, in case you can't hear my enthusiasm here, please know I think it was one of the best examples of really great critical thinking. And I love that. Um, 
product managers by nature are excellent critical thinkers. You know, I, I predict uh, in a number of years I'll be able to uh, unveil Amy's real name and uh, point to her as a CEO in a company, and that will be a great day. She has that type of thought process, process and approach to to looking at things differently and gaining support and uh, and ultimately driving change not from fiat or command, but from the actions then drawing people into it. It's just, just a great skill set all the way around. And, you, and one of the things you said there about getting people as buy-in, one of the things you talk about in the story is getting the executive buy-in along the way. And I think, again, a place that this story really uh, shines for me is sometimes people overthink getting executive buy-in. What does that mean? Do I have to do giant presentations along the way? You know, are they going to slow me down? And they, and they kind of start to overthink that area. And she did it so casually and comfortably. She just was, brought them along. Absolutely. There wasn't a single PowerPoint slide created in the process, nor shown. Um, it was a PowerPoint-free zone. And the fact that this this use of a room and the visuals of the ideas and the feedback and what the team did over time became such a, a powerful it almost became an icon, so to speak, but it, it certainly um, was something that people could relate to. The executives could relate to. The executives started pulling, uh, uh, you know, higher executives and uh, partners and customers into the room to talk through the implications and imagine kind of the ripple effect of credibility it had for Amy and the team. It was, again, I, I've overused the term, but it was brilliant. Well, and, and not only credibility, but it, but how much excitement must that team get, right? So when the team's doing this project, which is a little off, you know, center of what everyone else in the company is focused on, but when they get that type of energy and attention off of it, it must have just motivated that team even more. Yeah, yeah absolutely did. And, you know, it goes to this issue of uh, so many firms, uh, and, and I'm borrowing Jeffrey Moore's phrase here, uh, struggle with this notion of escape velocity. How do we break the uh, force of what we've, you know, the gravitational pull of what we've always done before? And my experience, and certainly Amy underscores that, is that it doesn't happen by somebody from on high coming down and saying, we're going to change. You know, in this case, the best, most sustainable, most powerful change happened from the middle of the organization and, uh, you know, grew from there in that process. So, um, you know, she did a great job figuring out a way that many firms struggle with, which is how do we achieve escape velocity? One of my least favorite phrases is because it's the way we've always done it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll echo you on that as a least favorite. Yeah, like, oh, great. That's hard to argue. <laughs> the the, the follow-on to that one is, or at my last company, we did it this way. That just makes me crazy. <laughs> so what else? For our listeners, what do you think um, from Amy's story, right? A lot of great discussion, lots of things that we talked about. What are two things that you want people to do differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today? The two things Ooh. they could really take from Amy's story. Well, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz here. So, right, okay. I know. <laughs> I, I actually think in the article we, high, we highlight 11, so you're challenging me to distill down 11. I, you know, yeah, never use few words when I can use uh, you know, many, <laughs> many more, which is a bad habit of mine. This way they'll read the article for the other nine. It'll keep them guessing, Art. My encouragement is for everyone to step back and find a way to change the view. So the metaphor that I'll often use is we're all looking out of the same conference room window. And you know what? The view never changes. Maybe the seasons change a little bit. And although you won't know this in Arizona, we actually get <laughs> snow and seasons and things like that. I've back seen here. pictures. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> although my lawn is 
brownish green at the moment in February, which is which is odd here in Chicago. But uh, uh, nonetheless, change that view. We have to quit looking out the same conference room window because the opportunity or the risk is going to come from somewhere else in this world today. And it's moving really quickly. I mean, it's it's just uh, change is changing. And I know it sounds cliche, but if you look at the life expectancy of S&P 500 companies from, you know, 60 years, a few decades ago to less than 16 years, if you look at Clay Christensen's perspective that by 2027, 75% of the Fortune 500 will be replaced, not by like kind firms, but by firms born of digital DNA, we've got to find a way. It's a matter of, you know, less about thriving. We want to ultimately thrive, but it's about survival. Change the view and then find a way, leverage the example of Amy and be creative. You know, you can come up with your own approach, but find a way to get people translating well, capturing observations and serving as anthropologists and ultimately generating ideas and hypotheses and most importantly, turning them into action. So it's that ideas to actions connection that's so critical. The great news is that product managers are some of the best in the world at helping translate ideas into action. So I think I think much of what organizations have to do to survive and thrive in this world today um, here we go again. It's on the shoulders of the folks in uh, product management uh, and uh, and certainly changing that view and really emphasizing ideas to actions. Don't necessarily have to take it on in a frontal assault, much like Amy avoided the, you know, the political issue of trying to convince people they were doing things wrong and instead showed them where they could do different things. So maybe a little bit more than two, but that's my uh, my final answer. I think that's great. Art, this was wonderful. It's a pleasure to have you, and I hope you'll enjoy us again someday. Well, thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. Thanks for all the great work your company does, and I look forward to future chances to connect. Excellent. And all you listeners out there, I can't stress enough that you should subscribe to his blog, artpetty.com. That's A-R-T-P-E-T-T-Y.com. Uh, great posts and ideas that can help us all become better leaders. That does it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.